Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. Today on Policy Talks, we explore a part of our reality that we often take for granted. Something that revolutionized the way we connected with one, in- one another and that is now so embedded in our lives today. Its users have increased tenfold since 1999 to 2013 and nearly half the world's population has regular and uninterrupted access to it. In fact, without it, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. The internet, an incredible development in our modern communications and economy. So in today's episode, we're talking about the internet through the lens of human rights. Internet rights is human rights. In 2016, the Human Rights Council of the United Nations General Assembly declared access to the internet as a basic human right, which enables individuals to exercise their right to freedom of opinion and expression, which is uh, citing Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. If you look globally currently, however, there is an unequal access, uh, and in some cases, a series of suppressive government tactics um, that are inhibiting uh, access to the internet. And as a result, the United Nations has declared that online freedom is a human right that must be protected. This is uh, obviously something that we take for granted here in Canada. But even if we think locally, last December, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, which you may know as the CRTC, declared that broadband access to Internet service is now considered a basic telecommunication service for all Canadians, that it is necessary to the quality of life of all Canadians, and that it empowers us as citizens, creators, and consumers. Right, so as Mitch has just said, it's clear that access to the internet is not equal, and this is not only among nations around the world, but across our own communities in Canada, especially northern or rural communities that are more remote. Uh, To give you a better sense of the digital divide across the globe, OECD countries like the US, Germany, France, the UK, and Canada have high levels of broadband penetration at 80% or higher. Conversely, countries like India, with a population of over 1 billion people, only sees about a 19% broadband penetration, though of course this number grows larger each year. The entire continent of Africa has a population of 1.216 billion people and only 30% of its population has access to the internet. So then, what are the implications of this? How does a digital divide affect the modern global economy? Should access to the internet really be considered a right? Many questions to be answered. Here to explore this topic with us is Dwayne Winsek, professor at the School of Journalism and Communication with a cross appointment at the Institute of Political Economy at Carleton University. Professor Winsek won the 2008 Canadian Communication Association's Book of the Year Prize as co-author of the book, Communication and Empire, Media, Markets, and Globalization, 1860-1930. Professor Winsek is also the director of the Canadian Media Concentration Research Project and has been the lead Canadian researcher in the International Media Concentration Research Project since 2009. 
Professor Winsek, welcome to Policy Talks. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'd like to jump right in um, and uh, and have you, if you could, just clarify something for us. Uh, I've read it phrased differently, depending on the source, when we talk about Internet uh, as a human right. When we talk about this, are we talking about the Internet itself that should be considered a human right, or rather access to the Internet that should be considered a human right? Okay. Um, if I understand the distinction that you're uh, making, uh, I think it's, it's the idea of access to uh, the Internet that is considered the basic human right. It's not uh, any kind of specific content or services or applications that are being talked about, but rather uh, the universal Internet, the general purpose network that supports a, a dizzying array of uh, services and content and applications that people use in their day-to-day lives. Given that we've traditionally kind of seen access to communication technologies as a sort of luxury, why is there now then this need to shift our thinking to understand this as more of a universal right? Um, I think that's, uh, that's a little bit um, of, a, of a misunderstanding of the history of communication and human rights and the idea of uh, access to communication being a basic human right and the idea of universal service. I mean, if we want to take an extraordinarily long view, uh, we can go to the United States and uh, the United States Post Office Act of 1792, which suggested that all Americans as a right of citizenship ought to have access to affordable postal services, which was the premier uh, communication system of the 18th and 19th centuries. And so that kind of history gives us an idea that right off the bat, uh, access to communication was seen as central to the development of a Republican form of democracy and to the exercise of effective citizenship. Now, the idea kind of ebbed and waned uh, over time. It never really caught on to the telegraph, which was always considered to be the rich man's post, so to speak. But uh, when it came to the telephone, for example, and broadcasting, by the early 20th century, both of those were brought within the panoply of citizen uh, rights. And the idea of universal service remit underpinned the development of the telephone throughout North America and broadcasting throughout uh, the Western world. So then is it fair to say that when we talk about access to the Internet as human right, we, we really can expand this to other forms of communication, um, as you as you cited uh uh, written communication, but also um, access to to telephones as a as as a as a right that can enable freedom of opinion, freedom ex- of expression, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of communication as a human right always takes shape in light of the uh, predominant means of communication at any given point in time. So historically, post, telephone, broadcasting, and now uh, the internet. And so we see the the concept being rather flexible and expanding over time in light of the environment. And I think when you start to look at things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948, which sets out beautifully in Article 19, a right to communication, what it says in there, very importantly, is that citizens should have the right to all forms of communication regardless of frontiers. And that had both a geographical sense to it, i.e., regardless of where one was located in the world, this was a universal right that applied to all human beings, 
And second, regardless of frontiers, also had a technological dimension to it, as in, in light of the current existing technologies, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was established, but it was anticipated to evolve in light of communication technologies at the time. Shifting back to the Internet as a specific mode of communication, um, how can we define what is then appropriate in terms of costs and levels of access that should be made available to everybody? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the kind of million-dollar question that uh, countries around the world are now struggling with. Um, again, this is a question that turns on what a society decides and determines uh, through the policy process, through the, the, the political process, what uh, an adequate level of access means um, at any given point in time to effectively participate in the economy, in society, and to exercise your communication rights. So, I mean, when we look around the United States, Canada, Europe, China, or Korea, many countries around the world, uh, basically they're trying to set speed targets right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're also establishing what range of technologies. I mean, does it apply only to your wireline uh, internet infrastructure, or does it also include cell phones, mobile wireless networks, and a smartphone? And what we've seen uh, most recently in the last two years in Canada and the United States, respectively, is that the concept of universal access or universal service, I should say, uh, applies to both mobile wireless and uh, fixed wireline uh, infrastructure. What do you make of, um, and in preparing for today's episode, I read an interesting piece written by Vint Cerf. Yeah. Uh, who, for those of you who don't know who he is, he's, he's sometimes dubbed as the quote-unquote father of the Internet. And he made the point that, uh, and this is a direct quote, technology is an enabler of rights, but not a right in itself. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you make of that argument? Yeah, I, uh, I know the piece that you're referring to. I cite it myself sometimes because it's an important uh, counterpoint. Um, I'm not really sure what to make of uh, this claim from uh, Vince uh, Cerf, other than that, you know, some people decide or define the right capaciously, others very narrowly. And here Cerf seems to be kind of pulling up the ladder on those that have come up after or come behind him uh, and wants to go for a a very narrow uh, circumscribed right. And, um, you know, for a conservative political position, this is uh, well established. Uh, and people argue this all the time. Um, you know, it's just happily, it's not the position that's been prevailing, uh, either uh, in Europe or uh, North America or in many other countries. I mean, we can look at uh, Costa Rica, Brazil, Chile as countries further afield that have adopted this idea of universal service uh, or basic access to Internet as a human right. So I think uh, Vince Cerf here is a little bit uh, behind the times on this one. This may reflect uh, his position as uh, chief evangelicist for internet technology at Google uh, and the commercial, you know, underpinnings of that company. Um, but I, I think it's it is out of step with uh, the direction of events. Focusing in on uh, Canada's context, uh, I read last year so that. There was a fund of 750 million over five years that was set up to expand 
broadband access to more remote areas in the country. So I was just wondering, do you find that there's a lot of Canadian public support for these initiatives that are promoting internet access as a universal right? Like, is there a lot? Is this an easy sell? Yeah, I mean, when we look at surveys that ask uh, questions along the lines that you've just asked, the support is uh, generally quite high um, within Canada and in, uh, internationally. And I think the CRTC's decision reflects that broad-based public support for uh, uh, the internet as a basic right, and hence the the, uh, the definition of what constitutes basic service that all Canadians should expect uh, by uh, 2030, I believe, is the uh, deadline, and the speed standards at which they should uh, expect to be able to obtain service, regardless of where they live in, in the country, and the measures like the $750 million fund uh, that you mentioned that uh, is to be made available to build this out. So... Keeping along that line of thought, um, and if we say, if we, if we look at this pool of money and, and we look at the policies behind that and the target dates, in terms of actually implementing this policy in a Canadian context, can you give us an idea of what some of the steps are that will be needed in coming years to actually provide sufficient internet access to all Canadians? Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a couple of uh, things that we have to focus on. Uh, one is affordability, and Canada has a very big affordability uh, problem. Canada does reasonably well on access for a great deal of the population, but then falls down uh, when it comes to adequate access at the speeds adopted by the CRTC last year as, as the targets, that is the 50 down, 10 up. Uh, once we start moving outside of the uh, urban centers, and I mean very close to, uh, outside the urban centers, we find that those speeds are not uh, available. So the the policy process is going to push down those two rails. One, deepening the availability of high-speed broadband internet access in areas outside of the big cities and making the services more affordable so that even when it's available, Canadians who right now find an affordability problem uh, will hopefully not find such an affordability problem in the years ahead. Are there particular challenges providing um, internet access to Indigenous communities or I guess more rural and remote communities? I know you just mentioned the affordability. Um, could you expand on any, on any other obstacles that are, are common? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, the go-to uh, uh, explanation for people who want to take a narrow view of this thing is that Canada is a great big country with widely scattered population, and it's especially hard and costly to reach remote rural uh, areas. I think this argument is oversold badly uh, for a number of reasons, one uh, being that Canada is actually a very highly urbanized uh, um, country with uh, the bulk of its population located in a small number of big uh, urban centers, you know, a handful of Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, uh, Ottawa, so on. But when it comes to the remote r- rural areas, of course we have uh, issues there. And of course, 
population density is an issue. The cost of bringing service to those areas is an issue. But I think there are two things that we have to bear in mind. One, and this is what we heard a lot of last year at the CRTC's proceeding uh, on basic service uh, proceeding, was that there's actually a lot of what's called dark fiber or unlit bandwidth capacity, if you will, that exists in the grounds that are owned by various entities from <clears throat> municipalities to hydro companies to the telcos themselves that hasn't actually been brought online. And so what we need to do is we need to bring that bandwidth online and make it possible uh, for hydro companies and cities that have decided not to light up their unused bandwidth to do so. So that's one key thing. The other thing is we have to realize that a lot of First Nations groups are actually building out and trying to build out their own internet service providers. And if we look at the testimony, for example, of uh, the uh, First Mile Connectivity, or, uh, yeah, First Mile Connectivity Consortium, they pointed to Indigenous communities across the country that were building out their uh, own internet service providers, but what they were having difficulty was getting access to what I just called that unlit or unused uh, bandwidth. And so they need to have better access to that unused bandwidth, and we have to stop hoarding it, basically. And are any of these challenges directly related, in your opinion, to the the problem, I would say, that we have in this country uh, in terms of the, the limited number of Internet service providers that we have? And I'm, I'm racking my brain now. I know I think the term is oligopoly. Um, mm-hmm. where we have just a few big players and we mm-hmm. don't really have fair competition or some would argue we don't have fair competition. If we want to move forward and embrace, greater, have a greater embrace of, of access to internet as a human right, do you think that that necessitates the need to have uh, a freer internet market in this country? Yes, um, but at the same time recognizing that there is likely to always be high levels of concentration in key components of the internet access uh, market. And so we're never going to see the classic textbook uh, levels of competitive markets when it comes to uh, internet access. Um, This is true in Canada and it's true around the world that these markets tend to be oligopolies. And what that means is that regulators and policymakers, governments, have to make a choice. Are they going to basically steal their spine and adopt measures that are going to encourage as much competition as possible and backfill uh, the areas where competition isn't going to emerge? And we're starting to see some of that. Professor Winsick, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your thoughts with us on this emerging issue. Okay, well, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me here. All right, thank you very much. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. Now, uh, before we move on, we are going to take a little bit of a break, and we will be back with John Lawford.
You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Welcome back to Policy Talks. We are now being joined by John Lawford. John Lawford is Executive Director and General Counsel of the Public Interest Advocacy Center in Ottawa. John has been with the center since July 2003 and Executive Director and General Counsel since September 2012. Hi, John. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So we understand that you just got back from Europe doing some advocacy work with uh, Consumers International on this very issue. Uh, Internet is a human right. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you were doing over there? Sure. There's a uh, World Consumer Rights Day, which is March 15th every year, and this year Consumers International is focusing on online or digital rights of consumers. And so uh, the topic that we took um, to try to discuss and sensitize with everybody was affordable Internet and Internet access. So a lot of the... uh, a lot of the global south um, has problems with access, but also with affordability of Internet. But, you know, there's a lot of affordability issues for the um, global north and the more developed uh, economies as well. So you've got the you know, lowest income, 10% or 20% of Canadians and other countries who uh, really struggle to get on uh, broadband. We'll address uh, kind of the issue on a more global level in a minute, but... Before the break, we were talking, we had another guest on here, um, Professor Dwayne Winsack, and we were talking about improving access in Canada, improving Internet access in Canada. Um, and so the first question I would pose to you um, in terms of, it's a, it's a question of jurisdiction. If we want to consider Internet, access to Internet as a basic human right, and we want to improve access to Internet across Canada, from a jurisdiction point of view, who should be or who is ultimately responsible for that? Is this a federal or a provincial issue, or is it a, a mixture of both? And how do we establish a regime of enforceability on trying to improve access to Internet um, from coast to coast to coast? Well, I hate to say jurisdiction is easier than two, two questions, but it is. Uh, federal government should lead. You can never say in Canada anymore that it's purely one level or another. Um, unfortunately, because the courts are pushing everybody to cooperative federalism. Um, but telecommunications, which is what we're talking about with broadband, is, is clearly a federal area of responsibility. And most of the responsibility for telecommunications has been given to the CRTC. And um, unfortunately, in the recent broadband um, availability hearing they just had, they refused to do anything about affordability uh, of broadband for low-income or other um, disadvantaged Canadians. So that's where it should start. Um, The Minister of, um, used to be Industry, now Innovation, Science and Economic Development, should be also leading with a national broadband plan that doesn't exist in Canada. There's some vague talk about doing one, but I don't see any plan to do the plan. So... um, you know, instead we have an innovation agenda, whatever that means. And the end result is there's nobody concretely working at the federal level at this time on affordability or access, really, of communications. There's Now, there'd be people that say, 
the federal government has given $500 million towards building a broadband. Yes, they have, and they've given another slice of that, too. Uh, they may even do one in the budget in a couple of days, but that's always piecemeal. There's no planning involved. And um, take a look at the U.S. They have a national broadband plan. Australia, same thing. And, you know, they get somewhere, and Canada just risks doing nothing. As far as the provinces go, um, they need to be involved when there's the coordination with social services. So, um, you know, the kind of money that goes to uh, people who are in need on disability or um, are without work for a you know, longer period of time, they need, they need to have um, broadband brought into their um, allowances and not have it reduce their other income. So that's key, is to make sure that just because you get money uh, in a subsidy for um, internet connectivity, you don't lose your heat and clothing allowance or food or something like that. So why is it, in your opinion, then, that um, there appears to be perhaps a lack of a, of a real appetite to institute some kind of, of nationwide plan? I know you cited Australia, for example, and, and others. Why is it that Canada doesn't have that plan, particularly since uh, in the intro we, we talked about um, that the CRTC last December made a formal declaration saying that broadband access to the Internet is now considered a basic basic service for all Canadians and that it's necessary for quality of life. So why is there such a disconnect between the rhetoric and the reality? CRTC, I guess their jurisdiction in their act is not quite clear enough. Um, if you contrast it with the United States and the Communications Act in the United States, which was revised in the 90s, around the same time we revised our Telecom Act, they made it dead clear that there's a universal service obligation and that obligation extends to new technologies, and so now in the United States you've got a clear path, although who knows what Trump will do, to um, to giving people broadband access because it says right there in the Act, you have to do it. It doesn't say that in our Telecom Act. It says in one of the policy objectives, you know, the you should really try for this kind of section, that we should have um, high-quality and affordable telecom services for all Canadians or actually in all regions. You know, it's not quite clear enough. That's becoming obvious because the CRTC was able to duck what we thought was a pretty good case for a subsidy for low-income Canadians, given the, as you quite rightly point out, the essentiality of it now. Um, there was a strong case, and they just tossed that hot potato over to government. And, you know, government, um, unless somebody has vision there and makes the broadband um, world a... Uh, they're, uh, you know, they're the standard bearer for that. Unless somebody has that vision, um, it goes precisely nowhere because it's expensive, it's hard to um, get your mind around, and it takes a lot of work. So I, if I sound a little cynical, it's just because we've had that big setback, and um, it's convincing me that our law needs to be changed to make it clear that we want this as a society. Let's shift over to more of an international level. What do you think Canada's role is when it comes to kind of narrowing this digital divide across the world? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the G8 countries and G20, as well as the OECD countries are sort of um, looked to by a lot of the uh, developing world to, um, to do things right and to try new ways and to, um, to share their knowledge so that 
people who, who are living countries that are having lots of parallel struggles don't have to um, reinvent the wheel. So that's our role. Um, our role is to show how it can work. Our role, is, our role is to show how it can work in a large, dispersed country. So, you know, some of the countries that have, some of the African countries have lots of challenges because they got lots of territory, and, and we have some expertise in covering that. Um, we should be showing how you can get broadband into rough terrain, uh, long distances, uh, various, um, you know, technical challenges. Um, we should be showing how it can be done for all levels of society, how it can be funded, um, you know, all the policy questions that can be worked on. We should really be handing on a silver platter to to more developing nations so they just don't have to, you know, for example, think about the exact economic design of their broadband subsidy fund. <laughs> it's just, you know, why reinvent the wheel? So, so we that. would you then say that this establishing Internet as a, as a basic right in developing countries should be a priority for our international assistance policy? I think it would be a good plan, but you have to tie it to development of human rights, too. So a lot of Internet um, boosterism, I'll call it, is all about economic growth, and it's all about, um, you know, it can lead to unintended problems, uh, economic, cultural, all sorts of things. If you go in like gangbusters in some countries without being sensitive, the end goal of this has to be to improve human rights and health and outcomes for people. Uh, it also, you know, if you put it in those terms, it makes sense to the countries as well because they've got lots of challenges. And if you say this is an, an enabler, and it'll get you where you want to go on health that much faster, you know, then it makes sense. If you just say, no, you know, you have to do this because we want to be able to reach your consumers. I mean, come on, that's just, it sounds greedy because it is. So it's a matter of how you put it. Um, and you have to show that you're trying to help human development in these other countries. So in terms of, and I'll go back to a similar a similar question that I asked earlier, but this time on a global level, in terms of, of um, implementation or jurisdiction, mm -hmm. of trying to increase access to the Internet on a global level, um, particularly in developing countries, uh, many of which have very low levels of, of access currently. Yeah. Is the solution uh, the responsibility of donor countries? Is it the responsibility of host countries with assistance from donor countries? Is it the responsibility of large organizations like the United Nations? Is there a role for the private sector? Is it a combination of all of those? What, what would an ideal situation look like? An ideal situation, of course, is all of them, but in terms of how to get it rolling quickly, um, it has to be starting with the the high highest level organizations, the UN, and then, then G20, G7, and OECD, and passing it through to the other um, regional um, groups so that we can have at least at a high level that all countries are rowing in the right direction. At a national level, that's where the hard work comes, and that's where you're going to find there's different legal regimes and there's entrenched telecom interests with, you know, usually one big telecom company that owns everything in the country and wants to roll out broadband on their own schedule, right? And they don't necessarily want to have competition in it, and uh, they may or may not want to subsidize their uh, their users who can't afford it. So that's where the hard work is, and that's where 
you know, we face challenges even in Canada with our little group trying to have enough money to do this work, and it's just exponentially harder in smaller, um, less well-funded nations. So I'd like to see national governments um, supporting, you know, uh, community-based and user um, organizing uh, groups to to get feed feed into their process. And I think they should look at their laws and look to other jurisdictions as how to do it right. And like, for example, take the U.S. and just plunk it in the middle of your telecommunications act and say, we have this objective, here we go. Um, that is that is something that various countries have to look at nationally to get that sorted out, or all of the international work just kind of stalls at that level. Corporations, yeah, they can help, but they have to be very carefully watched and kept at a level where it's not just for the advantage of one particular platform or social network, but it's actually maybe a conglomerate of a bunch of them with some civil society input and some national government input so they don't get off message. Um, I think that would be the way to go about it, but it sounds easy to say. It's hard to do in practice. As is always the case, I think, when we talk about about long-term development policy, it's it's a it's a it's it's a long process and it's a difficult process and it's very intricate and there are so many moving pieces. I think we will end the conversation there, uh, Mr. John Lawford. Thank you very much for participating on the show tonight. Uh, we very much appreciate your insight. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you fitting me in, and uh, sounds like a great show. All right. <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd also like to give a big thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Samran Roy, Kenneth Boddy, Molly Horn, and of course, our producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks.